Remember the, the what's the extra? Book of Esther, we started on last week, and we're going to be uh, going through the book. It's a little bit, bit different to preach, though, than the way I normally do. I normally go phrase by phrase and try to cover uh, just about every sentence in the book when we go through it. But in, in this case, we're going to have to be a little bit more uh, jumping around a little bit and, and drawing truths from different places, and then I'll still have try to have application every week. So this week we're going to primarily be looking at Esther chapter 1. I hope you've read through this book on your own last week. If not, I hope you'll do it this week. It'll help you as we study it. Uh, it's not too long to read. It's only 10 chapters, and, and uh, you'd have a whole lot better understanding as we go through it if you would do that. The title of today's message is Obsessed with Appearance. Obsessed with Appearance. Um, we looked last week at how uh, there's a king named Azarias, and he's the king of Persia, and how he had a queen named Vashti, and she didn't do what he wanted to when he wanted to present her beauty to the whole realm. He didn't do, she didn't do what he asked, and so he gets mad and basically removes her as queen and then holds a beauty pageant to find a new queen, and so that's what we're going to be looking at today is all the focus was on the outside, on the beauty. Number one, the, the, they were over-concerned with the outside appearance. If you look with me in chapter 1, verse 11, it talks about how the king had asked Queen Vashti to be coming before him and to wear her, her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command and which brought, was brought by the eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. And so if you remember the story last week, in the first part of chapter 1, the king basically held a big party for 180 days. That's, that's a six-month party, where he had everybody gathered together on the lawn in front of the castle, in front of the king's palace, and he's showing them all of his wealth and all of his riches. And on the last day of the party, he wants the queen to come and display her beauty. It's all out of his pride. He wants everybody to see how beautiful his queen is. And you could say that uh, on that last day, he wanted to show the beauty of his queen to all. And she wouldn't come. She said, no, I'm not going to come and, and show myself like that. And so what is being lifted up in this, in this passage is that for a woman in particular, beauty is the most important thing. Of course, we know that's not true, and that's not what God thinks. And so the focus here is on the outward appearance. It's saying, look at the outside, look how beautiful a woman can be or how beautiful a woman is. If you look also with me in chapter 2, Verses 2 and 3. This is what the king does after Queen Ashley doesn't come. Queen Ashley. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that he may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. 
So here's what's happening now. He's, he's said, Queen Vashti, you're out. You wouldn't do what I said and show off your beauty. So now we're going to have a beauty pageant, verse 2 of chapter 2, and we're going to bring all the young virgins from the land to the palace. And uh, historians believe it was well over 400 young ladies were brought there. And we're going to hold not a Miss America pageant, but a Miss Azarias a pageant. And so we're going to see who's the prettiest and most beautiful in the land. And he brings all these young virgins to uh, the palace. And it says in the end of verse 3, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Uh, we read later in chapter 2 that they spent a full year preparing these young women. A full year in beautiful uh, beauty <coughs> preparations. Uh, some of you guys think it takes your wife a long time to get ready. It doesn't take her a year, all right? That's what they took, a whole year to do this. Again, elevating the importance of outward appearance and, and what everybody thinks and how you look on the outside is, is what's being lifted up here, especially for women. Do you know that the, the same thing is happening today in our society, believe it or not? I started to have lots of statistics about the number of commercials that are about beauty and and statistics about the internet, but I, I threw all that away because I, I thought you're smart enough, that's not a point I need to convince you of, right? I mean, you realize in our society, people are still focusing on women and elevating beauty above everything else. Uh, my good buddy, uh, Harold Harper, that most of you know, that passed away a few years ago, I still miss him so much. But he grew up in a different generation than we did, and he would talk to me, uh, I remember him so many times telling me the story about meeting his wife, Mildred, and how she was one of the only women he knew. <laughs> one, of the, one of the only young girls he knew. They didn't have cars then. Uh, you might have known somebody that had a horse. Everybody didn't even have a horse or a way to travel. You walked. And so she was one of, literally one of the only women he knew. And so I would say, Harold, did you dream about her? <laughs> Yeah, you know I did. <laughs> because he was the only woman he knew. But today, in our society, things are different, aren't they? People in our society, young, even young boys, in, at a very young age, through the internet and through technology, can see more pictures. Not just pictures, but videos. Do, do you know the elevation that takes place when you go from pictures to, to videos? They cannot just see pictures, they can see videos. And a young boy, let's say a boy 10 years old, he can literally see more pictures of beautiful women in 10 minutes. Probably than my buddy Harold saw in his whole lifetime because he 10 years old. Think about that for just a second. I say that we have elevated this outward appearance even more than the generation of Azarias, the king. Not only can these young boys see this large number of beautiful women in their pictures and these videos, but these are comparing more and more women, so the, the bar of beauty is being raised. Do you understand that? You think, who's the prettiest out of 10? She's pretty, pretty attractive, but who's the prettiest out of 50? Wow. You know, but then who's the prettiest out of 1,000? We keep elevating the standard of beauty, is my point. And not only in that regard, by seeing the sheer number of people that can be seen. But with technology, I know you're not, not going to believe this, but they're doctoring those pictures. Did you, did you know that? <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but they're doctoring those pictures and those videos and making them look in ways that, that is really not even real. And so it's 
unreal beauty. And so there's an unreal bar being set for the standard of beauty. The standard of beauty is being elevated to this point that is literally not achievable. It's not achievable for a, a, a woman to achieve because it's fake. It's not real. And so in this over-concern over for the outside appearance, with women it was beauty. With men it was wealth. With men it had to do with their, their wealth. And we see this from King Azarias in chapter 1. When he talks about the party that he had, uh, he, look at verse 4, he showed off the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. We've already spoken about that. That 180 days is equivalent to six months. So six months, they're out there in front of the palace, and he's showing off his excellent majesty and splendor. Every day, he shows them more wealth. Every day, he shows them how rich he is. Look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel. The citadel means palace. From great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So it's in front of the palace. When it says from great to small, it's talking about people. It's talking about people who had wealth to people who had no wealth. It's talking about people who were princes over their province to people who were servants and even slaves. They're all there. And while they're all there, what's King Hazarias doing but elevating and displaying all of his wealth? He's saying, look at me. Look how rich I am. Look at how it describes it in verse 6. There were white and blue linen curtains. Now, I know we don't, we don't value that as much as they probably did back then, but white and blue linen curtains must have been a big deal. That, would have, that must have been... I don't know, like mag wheels on your car or something. I don't know. That was, that was really fancy to have white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods. And then there were marble pillars, and these are stones. And the couches were made of gold. Now, we understand that one. Now, I don't have a recliner made out of gold. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine that being very comfortable. Maybe that's where the linen and the pillows were. I, I don't know. So couches made of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement. The, 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 the road in front is paved with alabaster, turquoise, turquoise, and white and black marble. So even what they're walking on is, is paved with these beautiful, different colored stones. Verse 7, and they serve drinks in golden cups. In each vessel or cup being different from the other. So not only do they serve drinks in a gold, you get a gold mug for being here today. I like to go places where they give me a free cup, you know, if I get to go somewhere. I, I, I enjoy that. Especially if you're NC State cup. If you need one, I can give you one. I've got some. I've got a lot of them. But imagine them giving out gold cups. And every cup is different. Everyone has a different form, a different shape. Again, it's showing the extravagance of his wealth. Look what it says in verse 7, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. And so he's also filling all these cups with the best of wine, the best of drink that they've ever had. So with women, they're elevating beauty and saying, look at the outside, look how beautiful she is. With men, they're elevating wealth and saying, look how rich he is. Look how much money he can make. And so the man's appearance must be wealthy. The woman's appearance must be beautiful. I sure am glad that it's not like that today, aren't you? Great it is. 
It's even worse than ever. Outside appearance is what matters most. Your image, what people think of you online, I don't know all the terms of what all you call it, your hits and your likes or whatever, but what you look like has been elevated to be far more important than your character. What is on the outside has been elevated to be far more important than your character. What you have, what you drive, where you live, how you dress, today means more than character. What's implied by this kind of society? If you live in a society like this, what is implied underneath? What is stated that's not stated? It is that if you don't have beauty as a woman, or if you don't have wealth as a man, then you're a failure, and you're of no value. You're worthless as a woman if you're not beautiful. You are worthless as a man if you're not rich. But if you can get this, if you can go and get this, you would be liked and you would be loved. And so there are many young people today struggling, feeling unloved, probably more than ever. Suicide is on a high percentage more than ever. Because we don't feel like we measure up on the outside. Over-concerned with outside appearance. Number two, you notice we all have different levels of struggle with outward appearance. We all struggle with it in different ways and in different levels. Men struggle with it when it comes time to choose their career. Many will choose a career that they don't even like because it has a certain image or a certain status or a certain amount of pay. Women will spend lots and lots of money to have treatments that are painful. <laughs> Guys wouldn't do it, wouldn't we? We would not. We would not sit in the chair for over an hour to have our hair cut. Obviously, I haven't. <laughs> but that's just the starting point. It's, it's painful treatments, hard treatments. It's all in an effort to increase the beauty of their outer appearance. Let's speak about when young people are choosing a spouse. You know that in today's society, young people are getting married at an older age than ever before in the history of the world. You know why? Because the bar has been raised to how pretty you have to be and how wealthy you have to be. And for those waiting for a spouse who meets the level of that bar, it's unattainable. Men can't find a woman that pretty. Ladies can't find a man that rich. And so they wait longer and longer to get married. And when you finally find that one that may be rich enough or pretty enough, I watched this happen as a pastor, when you finally find that one that may be rich enough or pretty enough, you're just hoping, cross your fingers, maybe they have good character. Let's hope they do. Or maybe they, by chance, go to church or a last straw. Let's at least hope they're saved. And many a young Christian girl who grew up in the church will sacrifice even the man being saved if he has enough money. Many a young man who's been raised in church and knows the value of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life will sacrifice and not even go for a girl who attends church if she's pretty enough. And so all of us in our society, we're exhausted and we're in debt trying to make money and trying to get pretty. But we're all so unhappy. What young married couples today? 
when they get married at a young age, they think they need to have everything within a year or so that their parents have had, have now have financially, that they've been living together for 25 or 30 years. They expect to have the same cars, the same size house, the same things, the same money. And for those young couples who get married at, at an age that's sensible and go and buy all those things and go in debt for all, all those things, the financial stress is more than they can take, and many of them will end in divorce. Because they cannot handle the stress of the debt that they're in. Let's move into application, if you would. This looks too much like religion. So what I'm going to do in this point in application is I'm going to, I'm going to compare these things that are happening in chapter 1 of the book of Esther to the church. Because it looks just like it. I was reading through it this week and I was praying with God about the application of this. And I, I was like, wow, it looks like the church. It looks like religion. You know, in our church we use religion as a bad word. I hope you know that. It's not a good word to us. It's a bad word. It's, it's the formality of doing things for God to try to earn God's pleasure instead of trusting Jesus. And so I'm using religious, religion in a negative connotation. Number one, in religion, outward appearance is what matters. We saw that in verse 11 and 12. When Queen Vashti came before the king, was requested to come before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty. She would not do it. And what she found out on that day was that her beauty was not enough. When Queen Vashti, who is in some sense lifted out as the bad queen here, I want to suggest that possibly she's not so bad. Uh, this one day that she, when she finally doesn't show her outward beauty, what she's really doing is showing that she has some inward beauty. beauty. She's showing that she has some character. I'm not going to come display my beauty before a bunch of drunk men because if you read chapter 1, I didn't read it, but by this point after this six-month party, they're all drunk. It's all these drunk men out there in the yard and they're saying, bring Queen Vashti before us to display her beauty and she wouldn't do it. It says in verse 12, if you look there, when she refused to come to the king's command, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. He got mad when she wouldn't do what he asked him, and when she would not focus on her outward appearance, he got really mad. If you read the rest of chapter 1, you find out that not only did he get mad, all of his princes got mad, and most of the men got mad. They were all very angry. Angry. It says they have wrath towards her. Their looks are not enough. Outward appearance is not enough. It's, it's important what's on the inside. But in religion, in the church especially, we try to put on a face. We try to show what's on the outside. We try to all look happy. We try to look like our marriage is good, even though you fall all the way to church. Uh, I, I'm waiting for the couple to come in and I say, hey, how you doing today? And they say, oh, we fall all the way here. <laughs> I still love her. <laughs> I've never had anybody say that. Not yet. It's your chance. You can do it later today. We want to put on this face. We want to display this appearance of everything is great in the church. Everything is wonderful. I remember some years ago, I was going to help a, a young man work on his car. I had a church member riding with me. This was about 15 years ago. 
And I said, I want you to go with me. I'm going to work on this guy's car. And he said, drop me off at my house first. I don't want to go with you over there. I said, why not? He said, they're dirty people. I said, what do you mean dirty? He said, have you been to their house before? It's filthy. They're dirty. I said, are you serious? He said, yes. I said, okay, I'll, I'll drop you off. I drove by and dropped him off at his house, and then I went to drive over to this family's house to help them. And I cried all the way there. And I said, dear God, don't let me get too good to get my hands dirty to love somebody in Jesus' name. The church wants to give us a that we're so good that everybody that comes here has to fit a certain standard of, of being good before they can come in here. You know, when I preached in my, in my first church, I had to preach that way. Do you know that most preachers have to preach this? Let me try to explain it. You may not get it, but let me try to explain it. Most preachers are expected in their churches to preach in such a way that they appear to be perfect in every way. Did you know this? They can never admit wrong. They can never admit they have problems. They can never admit they have struggles. You're supposed to preach this way because churches believe that you're supposed to set this standard of appearance that everybody would try to rise to to be like the preacher. This is, and I had to preach like this in my in my first church, and you know what I felt like most of the time? A phony. <laughs> so when we started Lighthouse, God gradually began to show me, oh, I can be real. We used to use that as our slogan in our early days. I don't know if some of you remember that. We would use that as a slogan, be real. And so I started being able in preaching, even in the course of a message, to confess problems I had and struggles I had and sins I had. And, and you didn't fire me. <laughs> You could laugh about that, but literally today in our town, there are pastors who if they admitted they had a, a certain problem in a certain area, they would be fired. Because you're not supposed to, to look like that. You're supposed to look like a perfect Christian. But what's happening in our churches is there's all these people sitting in our churches today who want to try to look like a perfect Christian like their pastor or the person sitting beside them or the guy that's in their church. But in their heart, they know they're not. And so people in our churches feel defeated, feel like failures because they're looking around the room and saying, his marriage is perfect, and his marriage is perfect, and his children are perfect, and her children are perfect, but mine aren't. I must be a failure. And I've experienced as a pastor many strong Christians wanting to give up because they don't think they're as good as the guy sitting beside them in church. And so thank God you know I'm a wreck. <laughs> you know I'm no count. If you don't, ask somebody else in the church. They'll tell you. He's sorry rascal. He's a sorry rascal. But he loved Jesus. Because that's what we have to elevate. Jesus looks on the heart. Not on the outside. Let me give you a scripture. I'm going to skip that first scripture. Go to the... Jesus looks on the heart, and then there's a passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you'll look at that one with me. This is when God sent Samuel to anoint David as king. So it was when they came and looked at Eliab and said, Now Eliab was David's brother. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For well, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Religion says appearance is all that matters. But Jesus says he looks at the heart. If we're going to be God's kind of church, 
people will be able to come in here that are dirty and needy and hurting and broken, and they will experience the love of Jesus Christ. Number two, in religion, if you sin, you stay away from God. Look at verse 19 with me. This is what King Azarias does after he removes Queen Vashti from as queen. Look at verse 19, chapter 1. And if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Azarias. So Vashti didn't do what the king asked. So here's the consequence. You can't come away from the, you can't come before the king anymore. Stay away from the king. And so that's what religion does. It says if you sin, stay away from God. I know this because I'm a pastor. Men don't come to church on Sunday sometimes because they sin really bad the past week. Do you know that? Because somewhere in religion they were taught this. If you've sinned, get far away from God or God's far away from you. And I know men who have stayed away from God for months or even years because they did something way back there. Maybe it was a really bad thing they did. Maybe it's a really bad sin they did back there. But religion says, out of punishment for this, you're going to be at a distance from God for a period of time. It's, it's like the parenting tactic called time out, time out. Listen, if you're a parent here today and you practice that, that is not of God. Time out. It says, go sit in the corner by yourself away from me as a punishment. God does not do that. God does not act that way. It, it's saying, don't get at a distance from me because I'm mad at you and I'm going to keep you away from me because of what you've done. Look at everyone else around you. They're so good, but you're so bad. It's a lie. It says everybody's looking good and everybody's doing good but you. And you know how messed up you are. And so in this condition, you think you can't be close to God. You can't come before God. You can't come in the presence of God. Imagine this for just a second. You have sinned, and then you finally get broken of that sin, and you feel brokenhearted over your sin that you've done against God. And then the devil whispers in your ear with religion, look how bad you are. You can't come into God's presence. You're so bad you can't come to God. Isn't that sad? That is not at all the way God is. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? I have it for you in Luke chapter 15. I want to just draw out some things from it. It says in chapter 15 verse 17, But when he came to himself, the prodigal son, you remember what he did? He took all his money and went and lived like the devil. And he's living basically in, with the pigs, with slop and eating what the pigs are eating, and he's miserable because of his sin. And, and this is a key phrase in verse, verse 17. It says, he came to himself. When he finally began to see himself for who he was, he said, my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Now go down a little bit. And he rose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, the, the point of the prodigal son's story is to know that the father is a representation of God. The father here is God. 
And when the father saw him, he had compassion, ran to him, fell on him, and kissed him. Now think about this for a second. Here's that guy who's done something really bad a long time ago, or, or last week, and, and religion says, stay away from God, you can't come into his presence. But the Bible says here in this parable that Jesus told, when God saw the broken man in, in his sin returning, that the father then runs to him. There's a song out now that I love. Um, I present it to our guys. I hope we may sing it someday. And it says it, do you, see, do you see the father running? Do you hear the father running? When you have sinned, when you've done something terribly wrong, if you could picture God is not running from you, he's running to you. He's chasing after you to take hold of you. He ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Looked down on the father. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us be married, for my son was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they begin to celebrate. God, when you sin and you wake up and you come to yourself and you say, Whoa, I sinned and it's terrible. Then God comes running to you, brings you to himself, puts a rope on your back, a ring on your finger, and begins to celebrate. How do you know this? Read Luke chapter 15, verse 10. It says there that Jesus told them, there's more joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's saying this, when one sinner gets right with God, the host of heaven has a party. The angels of heaven begin to have a party and celebrate and shout and rejoice because one person came back to God. That doesn't sound much like get out of my presence, does it? In Jesus, you're told to run boldly to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says this, when you're coming to Jesus because you've done something wrong, run boldly into the throne of grace and find mercy and grace when you need it. Number three, in religion, God gets mad and gives your position to another. Look at verse 19 again. It says in the end of verse 19, Come no more before King Azarias, and let the king give her royal position to another. Give her royal position to another. Verse 19. God's mad at you. I'm going to give your your crown to somebody else. The first time that Queen Vashti does something that shows her true inward character and takes the emphasis off her beauty, she loses her crown and her position as the queen. Religion says God's not going to use you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Here's what he's saying in this, in this passage. There are false preachers, deceitful workers, 
transforming themselves into apostles and prophets. Here's what he's saying. There are wicked men preaching in our churches. That's what he's saying. It's, it's more prevalent on TV than ever before. How many documentaries are there now on fallen preachers? Tons of them. They were false apostles. False preachers. Deceitful workers. And he says, and no wonder. He says that in the middle. No wonder. He says, don't be shocked by this. Because the devil himself transforms himself into an angel of light. It's what the devil does. The devil shines light on those who lie and cheat and get on top and says, look at that. Be like that. And he says to you, those of you who have been faithful, trusted God, done what's right, here's what he says to you. Look what that's got you. You didn't get rich off of that, did you? The devil lifts up Queen Vashti. And here's what he says with this story. He says, you know, the devil didn't use the Bible in this story. He says, look at Queen Vashti. The devil does. Character doesn't pay off. She lost everything because she wouldn't come out and show her outward appearance. <coughs> but Jesus lifts up, not Queen Vashti, but the new queen who's coming, Queen Esther. In this story, Jesus lifts up Queen Esther and says, character matters. Think about Queen Esther for just a minute. When they brought all these women together in chapter or chapter 2, it says they brought all the young virgins of the whole land to the castle. All of them. Now think about Queen Esther. She had to be a pure virgin to get brought to the castle on that day, to the, to the palace. If she had given herself over to impurity, she would not have been chosen that day. If she would not have been pure as a young girl, she would not have become queen. If she would not have been pure as a young girl, there would not be a book in the Bible named Queen Esther. Named Esther, it would be named by somebody else's name. That means purity is important. That character is important. What is on the inside matters. Now, this seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? It seems like this doesn't add up. This seems contrary to each other. We try to explain. When you sin, there is a point of no return. There is an unpardonable sin. There are sins that you can commit that will disqualify you for certain things in the kingdom of God. Do you know this? There are things that you can do that can disqualify you for certain offices in the church. There are sins that you can commit that can disqualify you for certain marriages. But also, in the Bible, there's confession, and there's repentance, and there's the forgiveness of God. If we take men like Peter, you know, you remember Peter denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. And he did not denied Jesus publicly. But that same Peter on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, when God's going to send his Holy Spirit down to the earth to fill all the believers. And there's going to be somebody who's going to preach. And everybody who's there, this is what speaking in tongues is, I believe. Everybody who's there can understand what Peter says in their own language. 
Possibly the greatest message ever preached on the face of the earth besides when Jesus spoke. On the day of Pentecost. And God's going to pick who's going to get to preach on Pentecost. He chooses Peter. Who denied Jesus three times while he was going to the cross. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I just told you certain things can disqualify you from certain opportunities with the Lord. But he chooses Peter, this, this guy who denied him three times. What you have to know about Peter was that Peter's repentance was equivalent to his denial. What about men like David? David sinned two of the most heinous sins possible. You know what they were? King David in the Old Testament, adultery and murder. Think about that. These are two of the worst sins mentioned in the Bible, adultery and murder. And then God uses David greatly to build the walls around Jerusalem. He, he carries on the line of Jesus through King David. And he even says about King David, he's a man after my own heart. How, how does that come together? Well, there are whole books in the Old Testament written about David's repentance. About how he cried out before the Lord and asked God to have mercy on him. You see, David's repentance was said to be in sackcloth and ashes and was an equivalent to his sin. Today there's a thing being called in our churches whereby our young people believe they can go out and live however they want through the week and come on Sunday and meet with Jesus in the presence of his holiness. And do it week after week, year after year. And God doesn't operate like that. However, it is possible for a man to fall and repent in brokenness and sorrow, call out to God and confess his sins before God, and God lift him from the depths of his despair and give him glory, praise, and worship in his heart again through Jesus Christ. Religion says if you sin, God will not use you. And religion uses the fear of that to motivate you to stop sinning. Jesus says, if you see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we looked at it. It's one of my favorite verses. Or do you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We say something to you, Lighthouse, Lighthouse members. If somebody begins to come to our church and you know that they're living really bad, maybe in adultery, possibly even murder, let's say that. Please don't go to them and say things like this. You need to come to God or God's going to get you. That's not what Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says. Chapter 2 verse 4 says, Do you see how good God is? Do you see how patient God is? Do you see how long-suffering God is to you? Do you know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Do you see that while you were living in that adultery... Jesus went to the cross for you. Won't you come back to Jesus? Won't you turn to Jesus? Number four. Religion says you're not good enough. Again, look at verse 19. You remove your position in the end of verse 19. Gave it, and then it says at the end of it, he gave her position to another who was better than she is. He says this. Find someone better than her. Religion says you're not good enough. God's going to use somebody better than you. Why would God choose you? You're not good enough. Let me just give you my testimony, okay? 
At 15 years old, I started going to church. Knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about God. And I go to church, and I look around the church at all the people my age, and I'm better than they are. Just being honest, I'm not making this up. I think I'm better than them. I don't chew tobacco. I don't cuss. And I don't breathe. Man, I was good. And I knew all these guys in the church who did. And I'm better than them. And they're telling me about Jesus and about salvation. And the devil's whispering in my ear, you don't need this, Jesus. You're better than them. All right? About six months go by, and in that six months, God is breaking me down and showing me how wicked I am and how sorry I am. And finally, I get to the point to where one night I just can't take it anymore. If I don't get Jesus, I'm going to die. And I'm like, God, I'm so bad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sinful. Will you save me? And I just fall before God and He saves me. Almost immediately, God starts to try to call me to preach. All right? And I'm, and I'm listening to the devil now whispering in my ear, why would God use you? Look how bad you are. Look how bad you are. You know, the devil likes to talk out of both sides of his mouth. He's a double talker. It's like this. Yesterday, the devil said, I'm too good for God to save me. And today, the devil saying, I'm too bad for God to use me. The devil does that to a lot of you. He's whispered to you, you won't be a good wife, you won't be a good mother, you won't be a good husband, you won't be a good father. How's God going to use you? Look how bad you are. But Jesus says, that's right. You're not good enough. This is the one time that Jesus agrees with the devil and he says, that's right. You're not good enough. That's what grace is about. Do you get this? You are not good enough. That's right. That's why Jesus came. That's why he went to the cross so you wouldn't have to. That's why he died in your place and, and was a perfect, sinless being because you couldn't be. Look at verse 19 again. It says, replace her with another, one that is better than she is. That's what Jesus did. He replaced you with another, one that's better than you, and his name was Jesus. He went to the cross in your place and paid the penalty for you. Here the Bible says they took the crown from Queen Vashti and they gave it to another. And Jesus took his crown off, laid it to the side, and came to the earth so that he could suffer and die in your place. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Let's talk about Jesus and the carrying of God the Father. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself cursed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on time. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. I want to point out to you something, one more thing in closing. I want you to notice, and if you're marking your Bibles, you can underline this. How many times did it says this thing pleased the king? Go back with me to chapter 1, verse, verse 19, at the beginning of it. It says, if it pleases the king, underline the word pleases. Look at verse 21. It says, and the reply pleased the king. There's the word pleases again. Then look at chapter 2, verse 4. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti, 
And this thing pleased the king. And he did so. Here's what the devil's doing in your life today for many of you. He's pleased, he's whispering in your ear. You don't please the king. So stay away from him. You're not good enough. He's not going to use you. And Jesus says, that's true, you're not good enough. That's why you have grace. You know what the word grace means? The word grace means pleasure. It means favor. It means when God looks at you in Jesus Christ, he is pleased with you. He has pleasure in you. And you please the real king, the one that matters. Think about this. As sorry as you are, as sinful as you are, when God looks at you through Jesus Christ, you please Almighty God. That's grace. When God finds pleasure in you. Would you pray with me? Would you ask God to help you focus less on the outside and more on the inside? Would you thank Him for Jesus dying on the cross in your place so that you can be forgiven? So that you can be pleasing to Him? Would you thank Him right now? Thank you, Lord, that through Jesus Christ I can be near to you I can know your presence, I can know your favor, and I can be pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us through Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to send Jesus to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that there is a way of forgiveness of our sin. Lord, forgive us. Would you forgive us of our sins, Lord? We have been so contrary to you. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. In this coming year, help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us not to be pleasers of men, but to want to please you. Jesus, we love you. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Thank you that you love me. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?